0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: Today's scripture reading is from Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6 Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. For you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way of the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God... Who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to, to God. God.
0: Thank you, Diane. So, um, so I've been an ordained minister since 1996. That's about 22 years, give or take. And one of the privileges of what I get to do uh, is that I get invited uh, oftentimes into places uh, in people's lives that, that very few others have access to. You know, weddings, uh, funerals, um, hopes and dreams, aspirations, as well as sins. Uh, even though we're, we're not a Roman Catholic church, there are oftentimes… Uh, going to be situations where where people, just in in order to unburden themselves, will come in and confess various sins that they're carrying. Addiction, infidelity, fraud, abuse, predatorial behavior. I've heard all of it time and time and time again. But curiously, over the course of about 22 years of Of ordained ministry, I've never had a a person set an appointment to come in and to confess the sin of greed. And I'm not the only person uh, in pastoral ministry uh, that I know who has had this experience of of having never had somebody set an appointment to come in to process their greed. And uh, this is really a curious phenomenon because everyone knows that greed is a problem. It's a huge problem uh, in the world and in our communities. Uh, And it goes like this. If you're maybe more on the conservative side of things, you'll say this about liberals. Liberals are those people who like to be generous with other people's money. So maybe a biblical example of that would be Judas. There's a woman who is pouring out very expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus. The value of that perfume is about one year's worth of wages. and Judas gets irate. She should have sold this perfume and given it to the poor. She should have done this. How careless, how frivolous this is to waste these resources. And it says in the text that Judas got irate not because he cared anything about the poor, but because he wanted to line his own pockets. It says that he was the one who kept the money bags and he would regularly take money out of the money bags from the designated giving to the poor to keep for himself. And then if you lean more toward the liberal direction, you might say of conservatives that conservatives are the ones who like to be generous only toward themselves. They would rather see people starve than pay taxes. You might you know, look at the New Testament Pharisees uh, for an example of this in the Scriptures. Uh, There's a place where it says they are neglecting their elderly parents. They're not caring for their parents who no longer have the ability or capacity to care for themselves, and the excuse they give is, we're giving our tithes to the temple. We're being generous over here, and so there's nothing left to take care of our elderly parents. And Jesus says, You've neglected the weighty matters of justice and mercy and faithfulness. He says you should have done the the former. You should have tithed to the temple, but not while neglecting the latter, caring for your parents or for those in need. need. It's a both-and proposition, Jesus says. Do both. And so these and other texts of Scripture and life experiences are indicators that everybody has a greed problem— in that everybody thinks that greed is a problem, but nobody thinks that greed is their problem. No one thinks, I'm not generous. No one thinks, I'm rich. So, there's a a sociologist named Juliette Shore who wrote a book some time ago called The Overspent American, and one of the conclusions she drew from surveys and such was that Two-thirds, a full two-thirds, 67%, give or take, of Americans who make more than $100,000. And so, if you factor in inflation from the time when she wrote the book, that would be more than $145,000 a year today. Two-thirds of Americans making that amount of money agree with the statement, I cannot afford to buy everything that I really need. How can this be? It's because we measure our wealth by comparison, not to the rest of the world, because over the half of the world lives on less than $3 a day, but to the people who we have proximity with. And so, if I make five figures a year, I'm around people in my life in social settings who make six figures, and so I don't think I have enough. And if I make six figures, I'm around people who make seven Figures, and so I think I don't have enough. Greed is everybody else's problem. And to this, the Bible says, What you cannot afford, what you truly cannot afford is to miss this teaching from Ecclesiastes and the rest of the Bible. And in this teaching, there's an imperative that we learn about, there's a time and a pointer. So the imperative, it's in verse 1 Cast your bread upon the waters, give a portion to seven or even eight. And so, every uh, commentary, every Bible scholar that I I looked at on this uh, believes that the writer is talking about cultivating a philanthropic life, a life of radical, other-centered generosity. To Judas, who is pleased to be generous with everybody else's money… The text says, cast your bread, not somebody else's, cast your bread upon the waters. Everyone contributes, from millionaires to babysitters and little boys and girls with their allowance. Everybody is called to contribute. And then to the more conservative Pharisee, It says, stop being tight-fisted, stop your hoarding, cast your bread. It's an imperative. It's an active verb. Give a portion. Don't spend it all on yourself, and don't hoard it all for yourself. And so, the question becomes, how much? How much? What's the minimum?" Wrong question. But, since we're asking the question anyway, the Old Testament baseline is the tithe. Ten percent off the top goes to what Malachi calls the storehouse. That's an Old Testament term for the temple or for the local congregation. And then on top of that, the Old Testament talks in a lot of places, about offerings that, that are given on top of the tithe. And those are the free will offerings that go to the poor and to, to various needs that you're confronted with. Jesus affirms both in the New Testament. The Pharisees give their tithes and neglect mercy and justice. They neglect the poor. They neglect those who are living in scarcity. And Jesus says, it's both and. We've, we've already covered that. Give your tithes and then give your offerings to whatever degree God calls you to on the offering side of things. But in the New Testament, uh, there is a freedom. There, there, there's, there's a tone of freedom that, that, that maybe is a little bit less evident in the Old Testament where it talks about giving cheerfully. And liberally, and, and, and mostly American Christians, have chosen to interpret this as the tithe has been abolished, therefore I just give what I want, and if that's nothing, that's fine. Grace covers that. If that's everything, hey, good for me if I've been given the gift of generosity. And yet Jesus says, no, you're missing the whole point. Because you have a bigger picture of grace, because you have the bigger picture of Jesus giving 100% of Himself away for you, you should look at the old way of generosity as a bare minimum, not as a ceiling. You know, the Pharisees in the New Testament, they gave their 10%. Zacchaeus, after he was made alive to the grace of God, he would have given to his temple. And then he said, half of what I make from this point forward, I'm going to give to the poor. And so, the Pharisees are giving their 10%. Zacchaeus is giving his 60% away. This is what happened with C.S. Lewis when when people started buying his books, and he became this famous author, and and this windfall of money started to come in. He said, you know what? I… I guess this means I can reverse tithe now. I guess this means I can give 90% away and, and use 10 on, 10% on ten on, you know, expenses for, for living and so on. You know, but this, this money sickness that is there for American Christians is, is, is revealed in the fact that American Christians on average give less than 3% of their resources away to everything combined. And yet, here's what Ecclesiastes says to us. Verse 3, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves to nourish the earth. In other words, a cloud cannot hold the water or else it will become too heavy, too, too bloated, too burdened by holding on to the water that's in it, and in order for the cloud to remain a cloud and to move, you know, in the direction that it's going, it has to release the water through rain and as it does, it nourishes the earth. This is a metaphor. When a cloud has excess moisture, don't hoard it, release it to nourish the earth. When when a Christian has excess wealth, don't hoard it release it, not only for the good of the earth, but also for your own good, so you can keep moving forward. All of life benefits when this happens. When the cloud releases the rain, the plants grow, humans are hydrated and are able to bathe, wildlife is protected, wildfires are prevented. Here's another statement he makes in verse 2, give a portion to seven or even to eight. What does this mean? He's talking about diversification. Be liberal, be various, be a venture capitalist with your generosity as you you unleash resources to build up treasures in heaven, act like a a generous venture capitalist giving liberally to various kingdom endeavors. Verse 6, in the morning sow your seed, in the evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that or whether both alike will be good. That's venture capitalist language, isn't it? Some endeavors will thrive and flourish. Other endeavors will will move slowly. But the point is to keep releasing God's resources into the world for God's work, and then the Spirit, who's mysterious, who we cannot control, we can't target our effectiveness ultimately. God's going to decide where the increase comes. You know, when it says that the widow gave, the poor widow gave more to the temple than all the affluent people gave when they gave out of their excess, he may actually be saying that her little two copper coins ended up having more kingdom impact than the millions given by others because God unleashed those two copper coins. You know, maybe, maybe for that two minutes where the preacher preached the sermon that converted the shoe salesman Edward Kimball… then shared the gospel while selling shoes to Dwight Moody, whose ministry changed the world. You never know what two copper coins can can do. Maybe God will take a millionaire's three percent and cause it to accomplish nothing, and a teenage babysitter's ten percent to unleash a worldwide evangelist through a moment that God arranges through a moment of ministry that's resourced by the teenager. You know, the 10% that, that they would give to their local congregation, it's like giving to a, a mutual fund. When you give to a, a local congregation, there are a lot of different investments in there that the resource is going to. Some are very unsexy. Call it The bonds of the kingdom of God, the staff that it takes to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and to disciple and to lead, the facilities, the water bill, the paper, the pens, the staples, the vacuum cleaners that make ministry possible. It's unsexy, but it's essential for stability for the family of God. And then other aspects of this mutual fund called the church are more missional. They, they may be more your, your aggressive growth stocks, like church planting, like money unleashed to serve the poor and those living on the margins, like public faith efforts, and so on. So, CPC's mutual fund distribution is roughly 60 percent goes in to the work of the ministry here, and roughly 40 percent goes out to the work of the ministry out there in various ways. And then beyond the 10 percent, they would give Targeted giving—you could call it—they're free will offerings, they're free will giving to the poor, to other 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 uh, endeavors, uh, to people, to places, to things where God was at work. So there's an imperative: whether you're a 14-year-old babysitter or whether you're a billionaire, cast your bread to the waters. Give a portion to seven or even eight. Secondly, there's a time, and the time is always now. When a tree falls south or north, verse 3 says, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. Well, no, duh. Of course, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. What's he saying here? He's talking about unexpected events. And when unexpected events like a market downturn happen, the principle still applies. You know, what Juliette Shore's book, The Overspent American, exposes is this. We never really think we're ready to cast our bread to the waters. We never think we're ready. And interestingly, the richer we get, proportionally the less we give. It's true. If you make $2 million, you are less likely to give... 10% of your resources in somebody who makes 20,000. Statistically indisputable in the American church. Wealth has a strangling effect on the soul. It just does. Charity starts at home. We we, we say that. Charity starts at home. But let's all admit that that's that's just a euphemism that means charity ends at home. Let's just be honest about that. You know, Luke chapter 12, Jesus gives this parable of a guy that He calls the rich fool, and He gets a windfall of money uh, or of resources, and and, and with that windfall, and because of that windfall, He builds barns and more barns and bigger barns, so He can just keep storing and keep hoarding His increase. And then in the process the rich fool preaches it says a sermon to his own soul and it says literally he says to his soul to his psyche to his psyche you have ample goods stored up now relax you have a savior and it's your big barns filled with buckets full of cash and it says god will say to him you fool This very day, your life is going to be required of you. And then in Luke 21, just a few chapters after that, we get the picture of the the poor widow who gives two copper coins to the temple while the rich are giving out of their abundance, their spare resources, what they have left over after they've spent on themselves and hoarded for themselves. And Jesus says, the rich gave out of their abundance. But this woman has given more than anyone in giving these two copper coins because she gave out of her own place of poverty. Today, in the American church, among those who identify as followers of Jesus Christ, 50% give nothing. Nothing. And what you have throughout the United States is millionaires who give nothing, benefiting from the faithful giving of poor widows and teenagers from their allowance. The bread and cup that millionaires receive is funded by 14-year-olds from a $20 payday. And that's not said to shame. That is just a statement to awaken us to how sick we are, to the lump that's there in our armpit that is malignant. It is a mercy for Jesus to talk more about money and greed than He does about heaven and hell, more about money and greed than He does about love, because this is the one thing Jesus identified as the thing that you cannot worship and serve and simultaneously worship and serve God. You have to choose. Which one's going to be your master? Which one are you going to hold and to cling to? Which, which one are you going to ask to hold you and to, to cling to you? You can't love God and money. You have to make your choice. And to the rich, Jesus says, beware of all kinds of greed. You know, the rich fool, his, his issue was hoarding sickness. There's also Another version of that, spending sickness, retail therapy, or as, you know, the financial guru Dave Ramsey says, we spend money we don't have on things we don't need to impress people that we don't like, you know, truckloads of resources going to beauty and fashion, Because of an idolatry of physical attractiveness or to elite education. When we lived in New York City, people would begin donating to to private schools, to the elite private schools, when they discovered they were pregnant. They had their child in utero on a Harvard trajectory before the child was even born or developed any opinions or dreams of their own. Elite education can be an idol. Living in a certain kind of neighborhood or having a certain kind of car or being a member of a certain kind of club so you can be part of certain social circles so that you feel important, feeling important by virtue of who you're connected to and what your life looks like, your highlight reel from a distance can be an idol as well, image. And I think it's important to say here that having wealth is not the issue. There are plenty of affluent faithful in the Scriptures starting with Job, who was the wealthiest person in the world, and also, by God's assessment, the most humble and godly and also generous person in the world. It's not only Job, there's also Solomon, who Jesus speaks affirmingly of, who who lived in all of His splendor. There's Phoebe, who financed uh, the ministry of the church, prominent businesswoman, Lydia, another prominent businesswoman who had a house large enough that, that, that she could host an entire church in her home. You know, the Bible is not anti-wealth, it's not anti-acquisition, it's not anti-affluence, it's anti-greed. It's anti-hoarding, it's anti-spending only on myself. It's anti-thinking that greed is everybody else's problem. Where we must put our guard up is not to guard ourselves from having wealth, but from chasing it and from loving it, because we can serve only one master, and we must choose. How can we safeguard our hearts? So, so Tim Keller has a little algorithm that he gives in, in sermons on generosity, and Tim says this, give toward the top of the potential in your bracket, and live toward the bottom of your bracket. Give toward the top and live toward the bottom of whatever your income bracket might be. Notice, part of that algorithm does not include leaving your income bracket, because you're going to be more godly and more virtuous if, if you lower your income bracket. God wants His people in every kind of community. He wants His people among the poor. He wants His His people among the affluent rich like Nicodemus in John chapter 3. John Piper had had a similar statement. He says that money can be hazardous, and so I want to encourage you to put limits on how much you keep for yourselves. Not limits on how much you make, but on how much you keep. Money is also helpful, which means you get the incredible joy of giving more to the causes that you love. You know, I was having a conversation with a person in our church who basically, (laughs) I asked him, what's your goal in life? He's a big dreamer, and he says, you know, God's given me the ability to make a truckload of money, and what I want to do is make a truckload of money. I'm like, okay, please continue. I want to make a truckload of money so I can give a truckload of money and die with nothing and have treasures in heaven. It's a wonderful ideal. Not everybody is able to make that kind of money. But even babysitters, and especially babysitters and poor widows, still get to participate and still get to be called among the most generous by Jesus Himself. It's not about, a, it's not about the amount as much as it is about the heart. You know, As the song says, it's not just. What you're born with, it's what you choose to bear. It's not how much you're given, but it's how much you can share. So, if I'm strapped, you know, there's a place for the poor widow. There's a place for the Macedonian who, the Apostle Paul says, the Macedonians, out of their extreme poverty, had a wealth of generosity. You know, no matter our situation, there's always an opportunity to contribute. So, um, 2008, market crash. Wall Street went tumbling, and at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, where where I was on staff, on the pastoral staff at the time, um, we took up a diaconal fund because of all the people who ended up in unemployment because of that. And during this downturn where everybody had, had lost roughly half of their net worth, Redeemer received the largest benevolence offering in the history of the church, people giving out of their their relative scarcity in order to help those who had even greater need. Similar story here at Christ Presbyterian. I've I've shared this before. There was a couple at our church that was in dire need of resourcing, and they were part of a kind of a mid-sized group. In our, in our church, and there was a social gathering, and the leader of that mid-sized group said, "There, there are some people among us, and they're going to be. I'm going to leave. I'm not going to name them. I'm not going to say who they are, but they're in financial straits right now. And what I'd like to do is, is take up an offering uh, that 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 we can confidentially and privately give toward the needs of these people who are financially strapped." and And so everybody sort of, you know, pulled out their wallets and their checkbooks and stroked the checks. And when the money was being counted, they discovered that the people who gave the most to that offering for the anonymous couple in need was the couple in need. How amazing is that, that everybody gets to participate? And this increases the strength of our witness, the historian Rodney Stark when he describes the the rapid growth of of the church of Jesus Christ in the first three centuries of of, of Rome, where everything was against Christians, politically and socially and culturally and and economically. Everything was going against them. And yet by the third century A.D., the moral fabric of the entire Roman Empire was transformed because of the presence of Christians there, And, and, and Stark explains it this way. The Christians were consistently and steadily conservative with their bodies, sexually, and promiscuous with their wallets. What would it look like to be that kind of community that becomes unexplainable to the world around us, conservative with their bodies and promiscuous with their resources? How can you stop that kind of movement? And finally, we have a pointer here, and the point is Christ Himself. Cast your bread on the waters. Jesus is the bread of life. Give a portion to seven, sometimes eight. Jesus is our portion. This is given in part to stir our memory of the One who loved us, gave Himself for us, to become our everlasting portion. Jesus is the benefactor who was poor. He was the poor widow who who gave not two copper coins, but everything. He didn't just give 10%, he gave 100%. He liquidated, quite literally, liquidated everything so that there could be liquid on this table for you and me today. And so the bread of life can speak to us and nourish us even today through this bread and through this cup. Having received so much from Him, how could we possibly... Withhold from Him such a small thing as money. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, all of Scripture, including this, its ultimate and central point is not what You're calling us to do or who You're calling us to be, its ultimate and central point is Jesus Christ. He was the bread that You cast upon the waters to nourish the earth. Thank You, Father, that You diversified Your giving for the benefit of every nation, tribe, and tongue and people group. And now, Father, as we come to the table, feed us with the bread of life. Nourish us and quench us with the liquid of the cup, which is representative of your blood. And having received much, may we also be those who are disposed to give as much as we can for your sake. In Jesus' name we pray.